More than half of all companies globally are family-owned or operated. Family businesses contribute 70% of the world's GDP and account for 65% of jobs. Their voices are important. Their stories must be told. Brought to you by the award-winning publication, Tharavat Magazine. This is the Family Business Voice with your host, Ramya Elagami. In this episode of the Family Business Voice, we welcome our guests, Dr. Malgor Zata Smolowitz, Research Fellow at the IMD Global Family Business Center, and Dr. Peter Fogel, Professor of Family Business and Entrepreneurship at the IMD Global Family Business Center. Malkorzada and Peter discuss with us the findings of their latest study entitled Navigating Your Family's Philanthropic Future Across Generations. Their study suggests a real need for families to transform, organize, and codify their philanthropic activities in a rapidly changing world. Enjoy this episode with Malkorzada and Peter. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Family Business Voice. I am so pleased to be joined today by my two guests, Malgor Zata and Peter, who are joining us from the IMD Global Family Business Center. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure Thank to you, be here. Thank you, Ramia. I think that this topic we're about to start talking about is one of the most complicated ones in the context of family legacies and the family enterprise. We're going to be talking about family philanthropy. Now, for families to know how to be impactful in what they're trying to do and the change they're trying to affect and to make that part of their legacy, I think is one of the most complex conversations one can ho- possibly have in the family enterprise system. Let's maybe start off with this fundamental question of why it is actually so hard to talk family philanthropy and why it's not easy at all to actually for families internally as well to agree on what is the right thing to do. Maybe, Peter, you can start us off with some insights from your experience. Indeed, I think you're, you're spot on. And family philanthropy is, even though many would say it's, it's an easy topic, it's a soft topic, it's something that people just do next to running companies and investment machines. It's indeed, I think, also really one of the challenging ones, especially if conducted in a group in a family setting. If somebody does it individually, it's one thing. But if you do it as an integral part of a, of a family system, it's tremendously complicated because it's primarily an, an emotional topic. It's something that you personally care about. You came across something that bothers you in the world, whether in society or in the environment. And of course, we are human beings and every person is touched by something different. And it's very difficult to say, you know, this is right or this is right because everything is right. Now, when it comes to organizations and companies, you know, one can argue over, do we want to enter a new market? Do we want to follow this growth strategy? Do we want so and so much financial return? You can argue and quarrel about that and then come to an agreement. But Whether you say, I care about a health-related topic, I care about culture, I care about children and women, I care about, about refugees, I care about plastic in the ocean, there is no right answer. And then in a family, and also when we run workshops with families around philanthropy, that is, I think, the most difficult of all. Because when you go, when you just start the conversation of what are the topics that you're passionate about in philanthropy, in the world... You look at the SDGs or whatever trigger you use, you have five people and you have 20 things that they're passionate about. And some will overlap, 
but they're profoundly unique because we are all unique. It is one of the most challenging things to create common agreement around. And, but at the other end, it's, it's one of the most beautiful things if we do to actually work on something very meaningful together across generations, across siblings, across cousins, you know, and to form alignment and a common purpose ultimately. Everyone perceives one crisis as bigger over another. But I also think that we are very spoiled in this first quarter century with crises. So like there's like a lot to fix, it feels like. And there's a lot of acute problems and a lot of very pressing issues that, ranging from climate change and obviously actual war zones that have that have emerged over the last few years. And how do you assess this current particular time, Malkorzata, like in terms of like, do you think that the options are even bigger than they used to be? Like, do we even have more things to choose from when it comes to deciding what actually our family philanthropy should be aimed at? We do find that it's particularly challenging for a family to align on these different dilemmas, uh, decision points, trade-offs to really make family philanthropy work for society and environment, but also for the family itself. As you mentioned, there are so many different challenges, issues, and causes that one could tackle, but there's really not enough resources and enough time to make a difference in something. So one of the things what we discovered uh, conducting research with the enterprising families around their family philanthropy is actually the focus, so the cause, is difficult decision that they make. And there are within the family, family members that differ and, and you know, larger and, and older families. We talk about families which live in different countries all around the globe. So the daily challenges or even what they see are the needs of the communities in which they are based will be different. So really finding that agreement, having everybody on board and then keeping family members engaged throughout those years when they work together to you know, fulfill the mission of uh, family philanthropy, but also help the family legacy to move it forward and build inclusive and cohesive giving strategy. And as you said, there are so many crises out there. Yeah, yeah. I think there is one big difference today compared to the pre-internet era, because I think that really has changed things, especially social media. I think historically, individuals and families, they've been exposed to a set of challenges in their environment, whether in their communities, in their countries, or the places that they had a chance to travel to and explore and get exposed to either through business or leisure. And today, we have a real-time exposure to everything that is going on in the world, whether it's a fundraiser here, it's a flooding event there, it's a volcano eruption there, it's a capsized refugee ship there, it's a war there, right? So, so we're nonstop confronted with challenges everywhere in the world. And indeed, if you are an individual who thinks about, I want to help, I think, you know, that is one of the big dilemmas that families have, how they respond to incoming requests and these kind of ad hoc requests for funding support versus being true to a very strategic approach. Like some families that say, we focus on this topic 
Of course, we occasionally get approached by, by others from other areas, but we have our focus, or maybe we have a small pocket of our funds allocated to ad hoc giving, but the majority is, is very strategic, and we go out and we partner with very selected uh, organizations, and, and we don't budge, right? So, so there are these different approaches, and I think that has fundamentally changed. I'm just very curious about, you know, this old saying of, um, you know, charity begins at home. Is there an argument to be made by saying like, you know what, start in, in your own front yard, basically, and really focus on ensuring that your community around you, your immediate community around you as well, etc. which I don't know, like how you've seen so many different cases, like, you know, can there be an argument be made for the, the, the bigger impact you can have in your immediate proximity in terms of philanthropy? Or is it not a standardized finding? I think it's absolutely vital to be active philanthropically in your environment, whether it's the communities you reside in, whether it's the places where you have business activities going on. And, you know, it's not only that many or most of the families that we studied and work with actually are doing this in, in a very active way. We actually also see and, and we heard through our research that it ha actually has very positive effects, not only on the family, but also on the organization, the business activities. Right? Because, of course, it kind of makes sense. You know, if you think about it, many of the SMEs that are maybe more remote villages in, in, in specific countries, you know, we had some cases where the majority of residents of a village are actually employed by this one company. So, you know, the impact that, that the companies and the families have on these communities actually starts with employment and making sure the company is doing well. But then that's not where it stops. It, it continues with educational opportunities for the family members and other people in the communities, giving access to, to sports and culture and other things. So I think, and families are starting to realize more and more, and the companies actually as well, that a holistic approach to doing good for the communities that you're active in and reside in, and actually also tackling some of the, the foundational challenges has very positive implications, not only for the society, the environment, but, but actually also for the company. So you can actually measure that in economic terms, the positive effect, whether it's an employee engagement or even in financial returns. It just pays off. Even if you are not a big philanthropist, it would even just make sense to do it for economic reasons. One of the recent conversations that I also had with a family philanthropist recently was how to engage the 20-year-old next-gen. And so my answer to that was, wow, that's very late. Well, we work with families or research families and advice families that get the next-gen on board early on, 10 years old, and really hands-off approach as a part of the projects that the Family Foundation is running, being close to the beneficiaries and doing that work together with cousins. So... When you talk about involvement and charity starting at home, then yes, we definitely observe that naturally in the first generation, uh, founders start that giving to community in which the business resides and, and support employees in various ways. And interestingly, not only in the regions where we would see 
well, there is a greater need, but actually in countries where you would, oh, is that really necessary to provide that social side for your employees as well? What we observe in the terms of giving locally, at this time, family philanthropists also mentioned a lot that there is a need to give locally, but also globally at the same time, because we have these crises, as, as you mentioned before, which need to be tackled, like a climate change. One of the uh, family philanthropists we interviewed, he said, our mode of operation actually is collaborations and it's engaging in regions where we know we, we are far from them, but the effects and things happening there will shape the climate all over the globe. So both giving locally and giving globally is becoming more important for family philanthropists at this time to make that real change. I'd love to talk to you about the recent report that you've issued. It's called Navigating Your Family's Philanthropic Future Across Generations. Were there any major surprises when you were doing the research? Like, were there highlights for you where you thought like, well, we did not expect this from our interviewees and, our, and the families that we looked at? We covered all the five continents. So the views that we were able to capture in this study is very, very diverse and really broad. And there were both the positive surprises, but also less positive surprises. Well, the positive surprises, and I can give you a multitude of examples, is family philanthropists really taking the lead and becoming leaders in philanthropy. And um, let's say founders who bring entrepreneurial spirit and innovation to philanthropy. An example would be a first generation from Asia who wanted to help after the 2005 earthquake in Nepal, where 800,000 homes were destroyed within a couple of minutes. So he understood that you can't really bring those homes back quickly and support these communities and came up with a new model of a house. So he basically developed a house using an empty rice bag, created the model of it. And not only this, he shared it with other NGOs because he wanted to scale that impact quickly and really support these communities in Nepal. But then he realized that uh, others weren't necessarily following and were uh, finding or building these homes at a very high cost. So then he went back in and he innovated through the process and he was able to develop not only an innovative product, I would say, in philanthropy to support uh, people who suffered through the earthquake, but also to develop a process where the houses were built in a quicker, much cheaper way and more people would benefit tangibly for from his actions. And so I can go on on, on a female philanthropist from Europe who traveled through Tanzania and, and by chance ended up in a village where there was a need for a school. So villagers approach her and ask, would you support us? In that sense, they knew she was coming from a family business and they really wanted to be in direct contact with beneficiaries. And so they put the first very little resources, a thousand euros in the project and really put the villagers in charge for building the school and strategy. And so the first things that came up was we cannot build a school without building teacher's house because we will never be able to have any teachers come from the capital to live here in a madhouse. 
And so these villagers were driving the project. And even if it took much longer, the, the impact that the school really had finally on the community and children and how engaged the whole community was. So it became a center for that village and for others living in that rural, remote area in Tanzania. So yes, I think there are many surprises how entrepreneurial, how innovative family philanthropists really can be. On the other side, on the less positive surprises, it's interesting to see that um, for many businesses, large complex businesses and, and large complex families, but not necessarily older families as well, Sometimes they really lack a clarity on who is doing what in philanthropy in terms of the business and multiple family foundations that they own at the same time. So there is a really a great need for harmonizing, orchestrating different activities throughout the whole family enterprise system. And that was surprising to see prominent families admit, uh, I mean, the honesty and admitting that's the first step to, I would say, a change and success in philanthropy saying, well, you know, actually, we don't know how much we donated this year to various causes. Peter, anything that stood out to you in addition to this? Yeah, well, again, I mean, you know, we, we had the privilege to speak with so many different families from around the world, of course, with a certain skew towards let's say, Western societies, but still this was a joint project with FBN and they, you know, opened up their their network also and, and we could reach out to quite a few families from different places. And, and so I think, you know, in some way, what is interesting is that, that there clearly is no one way to doing this. There are so many different ways. And, you know, even when writing the report and so on, I think we were kind of thinking in the beginning, you know, maybe we can find two, three different patterns, kind of like, okay, here's philanthropist profile one, here's philanthropist profile two, here's philanthropist profile three, you know, but, you know, we ended up with basically, okay, fine, 70 interviews, 70 profiles, right? So, so I think that was a bit of a surprise, at which point we then switched over into saying that there are different dimensions that allow families to have conversations and they can turn left or right, kind of the forks in the roads or in the report or in the book, we talk about trade-offs. And, you know, in the end, we started accumulating those trade-offs. We came up with 32. There are probably 30 more that we could have thought about, uh, which basically just says, okay, fine, I can turn left and right on 32 dimensions, you know, do your math to, to the power of 32, how many combinations there are. And that, I think, was the most surprising to me, because when we said, you know, we want to we want to do a study on philanthropic identities, it really emerged from, you know, my PhD supervisor. He wrote a paper on entrepreneurial identities where, you know, it was around there, the Darwinians and the communitarians and so on. So he came up with like three profiles and we thought like, yeah, we can do the same in, in philanthropy. And we came to realize, actually, we can't. And then something, I think, in some way, a little bit more specific. But to me personally, it, it was still surprising is, you know, I think, you know, I guess in our study, you know, I, I think the gender, gender balance is, I mean, philanthropy is, is, at least in the families we spoke to, we spoke to many more women than we did to men. We had cultural suspicions that maybe in certain cultures, this might, might be more pronounced than in others, because maybe, you know, the men are deemed to run the business and the women do the philanthropy. But 
in some way, you know, I was surprised that this seems to be a global phenomenon, irrespective of the culture, irrespective of whether it's Europe or Asia or Middle East or South America or North America. It was a bit of a universal pattern that we had a bit of this gender divide, kind of, okay, they do the business, they do the giving back thing. I was surprised, you know, in the 21st century that irrespective of which culture we were talking to, this was a very strong pattern, which in some way, I guess, leads me and leads us to say, okay, maybe there is more work to be done. We know that philanthropy is often the only access women receive to the family system, to the family enterprise system. You can look at it negatively or positively. I, I guess when it comes as an exclusive access, it's not so good. But when it comes as a access to learn about the family dynamics, I do think that based on what you've told us, it's probably a deceivingly powerful situation you're actually putting these women in. I think it's it's a misconception that it's actually an area that does not eventually actually permeate everything, right? Like, and I think, and this is what we're going to talk about as well. But first off, you've introduced um, something called the Family Philanthropy Navigator. And I think, you know, it is always so important to underline the type of research that comes out with tools and that comes out with frameworks that allow families to actually assess themselves and navigate, if you will, this particularly murky water of the philanthropy uh, <laughs> domain. Can you tell us a little bit more about the tool itself, how you want families to use it, how you're using it with families? The first idea of it was back in 2017 already. We published the book in December 20. So it's, it's been a long project, but I think the vision of it was quite clear. We wanted to create something, a framework, a toolkit, a guidebook, that helps families go through this in a very simple, playful way, even autodidactic in some way. Uh, you know, we didn't want to write a book like most other books that are very insightful, but the majority of people don't necessarily read from A to Z. We got inspired by the business model canvas from Alex Osterwalder. Again, a simple playbook and framework that helps companies think about their business models, a, whether it's a novice company, a startup to design a business model, but also established companies to redesign the business model. And we said, why don't we create something similar to the philanthropy space? Because there is a lot of philanthropy literature out there, but it's, it's oftentimes very technical. It's very dry in substance. And so it's not so much geared towards the families it's more geared towards the professionals or the ones who are running the foundations on behalf of the family. So, so our mission was to create something for the families that is written in a simple way, but not a simplistic way. It's, it's grounded in research. It's profound. It's thought through. But then it's presented in a, in a very playful way, right? So it was a design-driven approach. It's created as an open source platform for anybody who wants to go through us, you know, with activities and case studies and examples and questions. And of course, then, you know, if they end up having a question, then, then we can help them answer the question. What I love about this conversation is just like, you know, as a family, family business member, I can tell you, like, it sometimes feels like this is just another area where our possible family dynamics and dysfunctions could emerge. So I, I'd love to learn more about what has been claimed to me very often as, you know, the statement of philanthropy becoming the glue for the family or like philanthropy having this huge impact on, you know, 
particularly maybe f- families that have gone through sort of fractious times. Is this something that we all want to be true? Or do you feel like after having done this research and the recent report, do you feel like you've seen proof of the fact that this actually has maybe an unintended, very positive impact within the family enterprise system? So not only without, but like within as well. It's a very good question. And what we see a lot is when families start coming together and deciding, shaping what will be their collective giving, and there's family dynamics come into play. So again, the the one dominant family member is, is leading the conversation, is, is calling the shots, and so on. The tool, the Family Philanthropy Navigator, actually enables uh, more broad, diverse conversations. In the book and in the report, we also present the trade-offs, so decision points that need needs to be taken or considered at some point when uh, shaping or uh, reinventing family philanthropy. What we observe is philanthropy starts with an idea, and that idea comes from an individual, and oftentimes the younger next generation, they test the idea before really making a proposal to the family, so really talking to the family members who could be interested, finding your allies early on. And preferably these allies would be decision makers in the family or or someone central in the family system so that it's respected by many family members. If that person is your supporter, things become much easier for you if you are that next gen that wants to really change things in your family philanthropy. And yes, we do find that it often happens that conflicts or rivalries that are out there in the business and affecting how the family is functioning. Because, you know, you are all growing up together and you know each other and and you've been through things. And, you know, the parents have history and the grandparents and so on. So sometimes you become this labeled black sheep in the family or someone who doesn't really share the interest or is different than the rest of the family. And it's so difficult to break through (laughs) that. It's so difficult to change that narrative about how you are perceived. And so philanthropy is definitely an opportunity. But what we do find, you never go and do philanthropy because you want to change your family dynamics. It's always the cause, it's always the motivation and the driver of why we are here today because we want to make that difference somewhere for someone else, not us, not ourselves. And these positive side effects then come naturally as you engage with your family. And maybe there there is a time where you really clash and there are infliction points where you don't agree on some of these decisions, whether you should have a public profile or a private profile in terms of how you talk about your philanthropy. And then that role of an advisor or an expert can come in and mediate a conversation. But we definitely encourage conversations. That's what we call the family incubation stage of your family philanthropy, which is like really going in, iterating, testing to develop that complete plan for your family philanthropy so that you can be confident with the next steps and how you will implement your projects. Looking into the future and, and your future activities around this subject, 
what do you think should be on the research agenda, not just for you at the IMD uh, Global Family Business Center, but also just generally in the area of family philanthropy? What do you hope at the forefront will be the most important thing that should be looked at? And on the other hand, what do you believe, based on this recent report as well that you've issued with FBN, should be sort of the priority, I think, for families to look at in the next couple of years when it comes to their philanthropic activities? In the world of philanthropy, also if you look at the research on philanthropy, there is quite a lot out there. But there are very few initiatives that really look at family philanthropy. So looking at philanthropy in the context of enterprising families. You know, most research centers out there look at the foundation world, the NGO world, how they connect, help professionalize the world of foundations. Of course, we do that too, but in the context of families and our our spotlight is the family. So I think, you know, one topic that will come out much, much more over the next couple of years, and I think will be relevant from a research point of view, but also from a, from a practitioner point of view, is this nexus between the different activities within the family system. How do you better integrate philanthropy into the wider scope of activities from from a governance point of view, from a resource allocation point of view, from a human capital development point of view, grooming next generation to go into different roles? How can we even use strategically philanthropic initiatives as a mechanism to educate our next generation of business leaders and family office leaders, right? I mean, this is not really talked about. How can we use this as an important stepping stone early on in the grooming process of transferring values and teaching financial literacy and responsible ownership and responsibility of wealth and those things. Very few families use it strategically in their family education initiatives. We weave it into all our education programs with families, even with teenagers as young as 11 years old. So I think that's an area that at least we will be pushing very hard uh, and and I think will naturally evolve, hopefully, also over the years. The other thing is, is as I said, this cohesiveness, the alignment between the different initiatives across the ecosystem of families, across businesses, family offices, investment activities, giving activities, saying, how can we use this in a, in a collective effort to align with our greater family purpose? I think, again, this is something that is still in the early stages. Now that looks at the at the family ecosystem. And the last point I think is, you know, before we were talking about local versus global, and I think local initiatives are something that that families can work on very nicely, let's say on their own with local partners. The global issues that we're confronted with, you know, unless you're Bill Gates, who then come out and say, you know, let's eradicate Ebola. There are not many philanthropists who can make statements like that and say, I'm going to tackle a global issue single-handedly, which of course they don't do single-handedly, but they have they have a, a power that, that most philanthropists just don't have. So even though, of course, they operate in an ecosystem. But, but I think where we see one of the big trends is in the collaborative approach of giving and where even smaller philanthropic foundations or initiatives are starting to to join forces to tackle some of the grander issues, where again, I think we can leverage technology um, also also moving forward. Women in philanthropy is one topic that is under-researched currently, 
And in the interviews, there were, I would call it, uh, leaders, female leaders that were driving family philanthropy and also changing the business at the same time through their philanthropic approach. And definitely more uh, showcasing this, these role models will be uh, one of the things that we should focus as well with the chair. And uh, you also asked about the priority, where the families should start or should look at. We do find that families tend to be on one end of the spectrum and then they stay there for a generation, more or less. So these families that shift more to the middle, open up for discussion and become more inclusive in terms of focus. We only give to one cause. That's it. Next generation coming with new interests or, or, you know, the transformative forces, external forces of philanthropy that shape what families should be doing today. So really opening up the conversation and shifting a little bit and, and revising these decision points, why they were historically made that way. Is there a room where so that families to consider in refreshing, renewing their philanthropy, family philanthropy to really achieve that desired impact? Well, thank you very much, Malgorzata and Peter, for coming on the show today to discuss what I call the astrophysics topic of family enterprise systems. A lot more can be learned about family philanthropy. We will be linking to the report that we've mentioned in this podcast below the podcast player that you can go download it and enjoy. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Family Business Voice. Subscribe to our channels now on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, or Spotify to be notified of our weekly episodes.